Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we bring you a story about a group of very inept killers and their slow and stupid undoing. This, ladies and gentlemen, is part two of the death of legendary New York barfly, Mike the Durable, the Irish Rasputin, the juggernaut, Iron Mike himself, Mr. Michael Malloy. And again, this episode is based on the fantastic book, On the House by Simon Reed. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, you know what? Just go ahead and hit the stop button. Go back, listen to the episode before this. Get yourself caught up. But I am also... I think people can figure that out, right? Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I felt like I was really doing a good service. (laughs) Uh, But speaking of good service... Oh, baby, the drought is over. We got a new five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And this one little special gift comes from a very nice person named Dave. Dave, we love you. He says so many uh, really nice things about the show and about us. But he also says that with my beard the way it's currently looking, I could play a young Jack Black. And I want to say thank you, Dave, from the bottom of my heart, for including the word young ah. in that sentence. Thank you so, so much. You're my new favorite person. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, just listen to a different podcast. Plus, we'll do a little cursing and joking. So if you don't like that, listen to anything except for us right now. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay. Let's get started. All right, Nick, I think we're ready for one of those famous Nick Cassellini recaps. Okay. I love them. This is, yeah. Uh, This is what happened in part one, guys. Okay, for this recap, I'd like to ask our listeners to imagine the story going down kind of like a cutting-edge black box theater production of a play. Maybe a Sam Shepard script or whoever wrote Buffalo Nickel. You know what I'm saying? That kind of thing. Because I know it's true crime, but what is the truth if not a well-crafted fiction? Mm-hmm. Muriel's not enjoying this so far. Okay, the setting is New York City, 1932. Act two lights up on Marino's a windowless speakeasy devoid of any romantic trappings of one. What one might assign a place of booze during prohibition. The lighting is yellow as if urine powers the naked light bulbs that stick out of the dirty walls. Center stage is a bar understocked with labelless bottles of bootleg liquor. A few sticky tables and mismatched chairs are scattered across the floor as if no one ever decided it was important to set them up in a welcoming way. Stage right. Sits three men, 
the Murder Trust OGs. Pasqua and the bar's owner, Marino, whisper murder plans to each other in Italian, and Christberg, if I remember his name correctly, nods along, understanding none of what they say because he can't speak the language, but he's happy to be hanging out with them. Stage left sits Tough Tony, a violent low-level mafia wannabe who has forced his who has forced his way into the murder trust and quickly made himself not only a member, but the president of the gang behind the bar is the bartender. I think his name is Joseph. He's now in the murder trust too. And he's very drunk. Enter stage, right? Our main character and the man, the murder trust wants dead. Michael Malloy. He's in his forties, but looks to be in his eighties. He makes Charles Bukowski's drinking look like a sip of communion wine. The murder trust has been giving him poison in the form of alcohol to try to kill him so they can collect his life insurance but they've also been giving him regular bootleg booze which has been acting as the antidote to their poison instead of dying malloy is better than they've ever seen him too many people know about the murder trust plans which means too many people are expecting a cut of the payout tough tony is getting impatient and everyone so far is a lowlife, so I'm expecting a lot of brutality ahead. Our narrator of the play, Muriel Montgomery, enters through the audience, steps up to the microphone, and starts talking. (laughs) (laughs) You hated that. Very theatrical. (laughs) I was lying there here writing the intro, and I was like, why is this taking so long? Now I understand. Very, I didn't hate it. Hmm. That one was lovely. <laughs> uh, it was very expressive. I loved it. Why are you saying I hated it? I don't know. It's probably because of your complete lack of reaction in, in the affirmative. I know? mean, I figured you were being so theatrical. You didn't <laughs> want any interruption. <laughs> All right, narrator. Okay. So last week, we laid out the bones for our story, right? A relatively simple insurance scheme that hinged on the death of a man already on death's door. A man who needed a little push from a group of guys down on their luck and ready for a payday, right? Mm -hmm. So this week, we talk about how that plan completely spiraled out of control. Now, this next bit is kind of interesting to me, mainly Mm -hmm. because it feels that the gang quickly lost sight of their goal. You know, they needed the unsuspicious death of Micah Malloy. Yeah. Special bonus if he died accidentally and they could collect on the double indemnity clause of the insurance policy. Right. Instead, they conducted a series of haphazard experiments on Malloy that all failed to kill him before (laughs) moving on to more elaborate methods involving even more co-conspirators and more money. (laughs) Eventually, the gang succeeded. Uh-huh. But Michael Malloy did not go down easy. When we left off, the boys were astonished to find Iron Mike Malloy could essentially drink shots of antifreeze. Uh, and that really got the gears turning for our gang, right? Uh-huh. In their quest to kill Mike Malloy, this was the uh, poisoned fish era. <laughs> Chapter one, poisoned fish. <laughs> Working as an undertaker in the 1930s, 24-year-old Frank Pasqua had dealt with a lot of bodies of people who had died from a lot of different things, right? Modern medicine's not great. Also, he's only 24. I pictured all these people. I mean, I remember you saying Marino's 27, and that struck me as way too young. Tough Tony, I think, is the only one who's over 30. Right, and Michael Malloy's in his 40s. 
He's the 47. Guy, right, the guy. The I mean, doctor. people live hard and die hard in this thing for sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. So he's 24. He took the undertaking business over yeah. for his father. Uh-huh. So it has this long history of happening. That's why it feels like an established business. Okay. But really, he's young. He just, he like had just taken it over. Okay. So like I said, he has seen a lot of people die from a lot of horrific things. Uh-huh. One particularly gruesome situation involved a freak accident. A man had drank some particularly bad liquor, liquor tainted with a fair amount of wood alcohol, Mm -hmm. and then he had eaten a plate of raw oysters. Essentially what happened is the oysters hit the bad liquor in the man's stomach and became basically impermeable to stomach acid. This is according to Pasquat. Okay. So he, he said the oysters then festered in the man's stomach. And he died of a massive stomach infection. Oh, my God. So this is like a guy that Pasqua had to embalm one time. Right. So he says, listen, guys, if the shots of wood alcohol aren't killing him, adding in some raw oysters would certainly do the trick. (laughs) Yeah, right. And like the lunch buffet is in need of a makeover. Right, right. Exactly. So Pasqua took a bunch of like a pile of raw oysters and soaked them in wood alcohol for days, basically embalming them. Uh Now, one day while Malloy was drinking a mix of whiskey and paint thinner at the bar, Murphy came out with this beautiful platter of oysters. Absolutely hammered and delighted, Malloy accepted the gift. In the bar... (laughs) Wait, who's Murphy? Sorry. Murphy's the bartender. Oh, okay. Yeah. I call them Joseph. In I my know. I, I, I should have corrected you. <laughs> There's a lot going on. In that. <laughs> I was like, I'll let him go off. Go off, King. All right. Okay. Uh, so Murphy's the bartender. Okay. And I was going to say, one of my favorite parts about all of this is just how much, how obvious they are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a tiny bar, and now the murder trust keeps growing in number. Yeah. So it's like, uh, there's like, if there's seven people in the bar, like, Five of them are in the murder trust, and yeah. they're all watching whatever Malloy is doing. Right. right? Yeah. And right. And the one of the people not in the murder trust is Malloy, who they're trying to kill. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, he he accepts the gift. The bar is quiet and still as the gang watched Malloy savor the oysters slowly, one by one, mm-hmm. until the entire platter was gone, and nothing. <laughs> Right. So first they thought, well, for sure, he's going to have some sort of like explosive diarrhea situation. (laughs) Nothing happened. He's like, that was delicious. Loved it. Kept going. He's going (laughs) to cover that tiny toilet. (laughs) So the days ticked by with the Uh gang going through the motions of Pinochle, you know, waiting for the moment when the ticking time bomb in Malloy's gut would explode. Uh But that explosion never came. Okay, mm-hmm. he ate those oysters and he was fine. <laughs> Astonished, the gang decided to move on to something more straightforward. Okay, uh-huh. at this point, we had talked earlier; they had been feeding this wood alcohol to him and accidentally giving him the antidote. Right, right, and now the oyster thing was kind of like this deep cut, you know, like saying <laughs> <laughs> fast So right now they're realizing chemistry. It's nobody's strong suit. Uh-huh. That seems like maybe not a great way to base this off of. So it's time to get back to basics. Murphy, the bartender, opened a can of sardines 
and he left it hidden away, festering for a few days on the shelf where the liquor was. Uh-huh. Uh, when it was foul smelling enough, it was time for Murphy to shine. He went down to a local machine shop and he got a pile of tin shavings. He came back to the bar and he presented Michael Malloy with a rotten sardine and shrapnel sandwich. <laughs> so like, right, this is good. It's like no chemistry. We all know that's bad and that's bad. You shouldn't eat them, right? Yeah. And if the sardines didn't poison him, the tin shavings would destroy his organs. So win-win, right? Uh-huh. Although at this point... <laughs> I think they were getting very close to more of a suspicious death than an accidental one. (laughs) Because they'd be like, wow, why did you eat tin shavings? You know what I mean? I mean, that seems very, uh, they're they're creeping, they're missing the purpose of the endeavor. You know, I set this up as a Sam Shepard play, but I'm starting to feel like this is more of a Simpsons episode. Doesn't it? It reminds me a lot of like a few Simpsons episodes. It it seems like how some people would try to kill Homer, but all the poison wouldn't hurt him at all. How he would just completely completely withstand There's all the garbage. There's literally an episode about that, about the guy Frank Grimes, who he works with, and he's incompetent, and Frank Grimes is, like, competent. And yeah. Frank Grimes, like, lives in a terrible apartment, and Homer has a wife and kids, yeah, and, he invi- right. and he hates him. Yeah. Like, he invites him over for dinner, and they get lobster. Yeah. And then Frank Grimes is like, how are you? You have a beautiful wife, children, yeah. and you eat lobster? <laughs> and then at the end, he goes... I'm Homer Simpson. I don't care about anything. And then he electrocutes himself and he dies. Oh my God. <laughs> it's very, there's a lot of parallels with this one. Yeah, oh, it's man. a good episode. All right. Okay. Man. I like a very long Simpsons recap. <laughs> you did your play. I did that. Yeah. Now we're even. Okay. Great. <laughs> hey, I still got to shake off my old young Jack Black uh, at some point throughout this episode, you know? So you have that to look forward to you also. so cute. Anyway, it turns out they didn't have to worry if it was a suspicious death or an accidental death or whatever it was because there was no death. Nobody died. The gang gawked at the invincible man at the bar as he munched on the sandwich, finished it, and then asked Murphy for another sandwich. (laughs) Okay, so like we said, by this point, everyone at the bar was either in on the plot or knew something weird was up. The place smelled terrible, like a combination of rotten fish and wood alcohol, which is apparently very stinky. Yeah. And the dummies at the bar were always staring at Malloy and having secret meetings. (laughs) (laughs) The gang decided once and for all that Malloy couldn't be killed by ingesting things. All right. They're like, we're forgetting about this. Whatever. He's protected by some sort of black magic, titanium stomach. There's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. And they were depressed. Their first three murder attempts yielded nothing. Marino couldn't believe how much money this stupid murder was costing him. After adding new guys to the gang and then paying for liquor, poison, and fish, his percentage was looking really slim. And then meanwhile, Tough Tony was in the corner like, I told you so. (laughs) We should have shot him weeks ago. He had always hated the whole drawn-out, delicate subtlety of the plan. Uh He wanted to smash some heads. He was so worked up. This is a little tangent, but he was so worked up, he just started fixating on an entirely different barfly, Uh a guy named McNally, who does actually get involved into the, in the whole trust. Yeah. And uh, he was just like, I'm going to shoot that guy. And they're like, what? Why? And he's like, he's so obnoxious. And they're like, don't, don't do that. It's a bad choice. They're like, don't do that. And then one day he, he 
followed McNally back to his house and then tried to shoot him, but McNally didn't come back out of the house and he was so mad, he went and punched a shoeshiner in the face. (laughs) (laughs) So Dobbs Tony's having a hard time. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell if the people he wants to kill are protected by spirits or he's cursed by a spirit. He just can't kill anyone. Tough Tony or Malloy? Tough Tough Tony. Tony. Like maybe Tough Tony. Maybe it's less that people are being protected and more that he's actually the bad luck. Well, he is known for being incredibly violent. So he does hurt people, just not very often in this story. I think that Tough Tony is kind of like one of those guys who's like, I'll beat his ass, but he doesn't actually do anything. You know what I mean? You know, I don't know. He's uh, an interesting character. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so they, they... they see Tough Tony's all worked up, so they try to get him to cool it, right? And mm-hmm. they start offering him different, more violent plans, like some sort of meet in the middle from <laughs> shooting him in the head to like whatever. Right? Uh-huh. Nice compromise. First, they thought of machine gunning Malloy down in a staged drive-by, okay. but they all wanted Marino to buy a Tommy gun, and it was 60 bucks. And Marino was like, I'm not doing that. That whole thing fell through. So finally, they just settled... Finally, they decided to settle on freezing Malloy to death. Uh-huh. So they go on to get Malloy knockout drunk sometime mm-hmm. in January on whiskey and wood liquor, yeah. and then load him in the car and drive him half a mile away to a park to a park called Cretona Park. Uh-huh. So the gang gets out. They drag Malloy's limp body through the snowdrifts, which is very difficult when you're carrying a giant bucket of water. Also, uh, they find this like empty bench in the snow they strip him down to his waist pour the bucket of water over his chest and then they go back home okay damn that's cruel yeah over done and done the saga was over and the gang went home to wait for a death notice in the paper Uh uh-huh however it was not done in fact this was very 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 far from over Marina was horrified the next morning to find Malloy alive and shivering in the basement of the speakeasy. <laughs> Iron Mike Malloy had somehow pulled himself out of his wood alcohol coma yeah. and escaped death by walking the half mile back to, uh, to Marino's speakeasy shirtless through a blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> did he wonder what happened to him? Did he say anything? Like, He's like hey guys, did you guys, did I tell anyone that I was going to a park? He just says, I had a crazy night. He's always just like, wow, yeah. crazy night last night. Ooh, I'm freezing. But he's also just got a great personality. He's uh-huh. like this, you know, Irish dude who sings like these great songs when he gets drunk. He's super happy. He always was saying stuff like, this is the best liquor I've ever had. This is my favorite place to drink. You know, he's just a happy yeah, This dude. is the greatest sandwich I've ever had. Let me get another one. Right. So he's back. And with that, we're going to move on to the part where the wheels really came off the clown car, okay? Uh The ill-fated run Malloy over with a taxi plan. Okay. So to set the stage, we'll start with another quote from Simon Reed, my favorite author on the planet, to describe the mood at the speakeasy. Quote, Marino sat in the musty corner shadows of his speakeasy. Failure tormented him like the syphilitic burning in his crotch. <laughs> Unquote. He's always talking about pirouetting around the ass. I know. He just really knows how to like land a sentence. Yeah. 
By now, in their failure to keep this murder plot a secret, the murder trust had gained a total of four new members. <laughs> Edward Smith, John McNally, the guy Tony still wanted to murder for being annoying. Uh, a dude named Joe Maglioni, who was Tony's best friend forever and just is always involved in whatever Tony did. Uh-huh. So like last episode, we talked about how he forced everyone at the bar to let him be the leader. Yeah. Well, he, that also meant that his friend Joe had to be in the trust too. <laughs> and then finally, a sociopathic young cab driver called Harry Hershey Green. Since the gang now included pretty much everybody in the speakeasy, they couldn't fit in the back room and plan Malloy's murder out in the open while he blissfully drank wood liquor at the bar from his own designated bottle. Basically, there were so many people involved that for anyone to make any money at all, they had to, at this point, they had to go for the double indemnity clause. Uh That meant that the gang would have to pull off a sophisticated staged murder something that clearly looked like an accident and couldn't be traced back to the speakeasy or any of the murder trust members. So this is like very different than a stinky sandwich, right? (laughs) We're getting into some like crazy orchestrated stuff. (laughs) It was settled that Hershey Green would run Michael Malloy over with his taxi cab. Tough Tony liked it. Straightforward and violent with no need for chemistry or patience. Right. Now, Hershey Green was fairly young and really thought at this point he was hooking up with the big dogs, okay? He did not realize these guys had been absolutely failing at this murder plot for weeks. He's coming in fresh as a daisy, thinking this is a sophisticated plan with sophisticated <laughs> folks. I'm going to make like 150 bucks. This is going to be perfect. Right. He didn't realize, or he couldn't have known, that things would escalate to a Three Stooges level of mishap and frenzy, and that Green was joining this murder plot at quite possibly the most unhinged chapter. Yeah, yeah he, didn't, he didn't slide in there in the rotten fish chapter. No, he missed the whole part. <laughs> the oysters, he missed it. He's like, now he's in this like other league, you know? Yeah. The plan again was simple. Drive Malloy out to a deserted stretch of road, give Hershey Green enough space to get a deadly speed going, and then bonk Iron Mike off. Now, first red flag. Everyone wanted to go with. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) Malloy had survived so much that all the guys wanted to see what was going to happen next. So rather than performing a carefully crafted task like a well-oiled machine, Hershey Green pulled away from Marino's speakeasy on a snowy night with eight slightly drunk, (laughs) full-grown men crammed in the back of his taxi cab. Oh, this is a clown car. (laughs) Marino, Murphy the bartender, Tough Tony... The guy Tough Tony still kind of wanted to kill, John McNally, Mm -hmm. and then Tough Tony's best friend forever, Joe Maglione. Yeah. Plus, oh yeah, we're all in the car, right? Yeah. Plus, Tough Tony insisted on bringing a friend that no one even knew and who he only introduced as Johnny. (laughs) They all sat on each other's laps. While Malloy was passed out drunk and stuffed under their feet on the floor. Oh, my God. You know what? This is just... I know we're laughing, and it's... 
it's so mean spirited and horrific, but also I feel like this is sort of like the little engine that could a little bit. I know there's something about it. This one actually really got me on a lot of levels. Like it's ridiculous. But at the end of the book, I like cried. I was just like, this is so it really, there's something about it. That's so funny. Uh And also just, so insanely tragic and childlike. I don't know how to how to say yeah. it. Yeah. In the moment though, it also feels kind of inspiring. I mean, basically this is just a group of haters trying to keep a good man down and they literally can't. They literally can't. And Malone like Malloy is just loves his life. You know? Like I mean, like according to everybody who talked yeah. about him. Yeah. You know, he just did his thing, okay? And yeah. it's like you know he's drinking himself to get to death and there's a lot of sadness in that yeah but for him he wasn't like a sad guy yeah he's just a singing guy comes back it's like yes oh my god the sandwich is the best sandwich i've all ever had free booze now yeah. i get the all to eat all these oysters yeah and these guys are literally haters and they can't get trying it. to block his shine and they, they literally can't now we're gonna get back to it. okay okay so he's under their feet in the back of this car right the idiot pack maneuvered through the snowy night to a deserted street on the edge of the bronx and outpiled tough tony murphy the bartender and malloy now malloy was still out cold so murphy and tough tony held him up by his arms as if he was on a crucifix in the middle of the road Hersey Green drove his still-packed cab a few blocks away and turned the car around. Green stomped on the gas, spun out, and then snapped forward, hurtling toward the three men. Tough Tony and Murphy were slightly crouched, waiting to spring out of the way of the speeding taxi with their cat-like reflexes. Oh, no. I just want to say, they've all been drinking. <laughs> That's Such the afternoon. So the, the, what they're trying to do is keep him upright. And to, so, and then so, he does, the, yeah. so it looks like he got hit while he was standing in the middle walking. of the street. Yeah. and But then they think they could jump out of the way, which I just was like. This is like one of those maybe, maybe, maybe videos you show me on Reddit or yeah. something. It's oh, pretty, no. Yeah, okay. So, so, so far, we're at the first two maybes. Okay. Just as they all braced for impact. A lady in her apartment just nearby coincidentally turned the lights on and Green flipped, right? He freaked out. He thinks they've been spotted. It's right before impact. He slams on the brakes, screeching and sliding through the snow, barely missing the trio. So now picture this. You're living in the Bronx on a cold winter's night. The snow is silently blanketing the city. It's so beautiful. You can't sleep. You light a lamp and pull back the curtain to see two men struggling to hold up a drunken barfly in the middle of the street. On the other end of the street is a taxi cab filled with men sitting on each other's laps, hurtling towards the trio. Now, if you didn't see this spectacle, you certainly heard the screeching tires and grinding gears of the taxi coming to an abrupt stop. And then... If you were really lucky, like spotting Santa Claus on a Christmas morning, you saw them scream at each other and then cramming themselves back into the taxi and aborting their mission. <laughs> the gang was rattled. They didn't know what to do. So they like, we maybe have got spotted, whatever. So they decided to drive off to a nearby, but much more deserted road and try again. Okay. <laughs> Murphy the bartender and tough Tony held Malloy up. But this time, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> For some reason, Hershey Green drove at them in reverse, missing Malloy entirely, who had sobered up enough to shuffle out of the way and almost hitting Murphy and Tough Tony in the process. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Round three, and the gang's nerves are shot. Tough Tony and Murphy positioned Malloy this time with his back to the taxi, okay. right? So he couldn't see it coming. And then... Still doubtful of Green's accuracy, they just ran clear of the road. By this time, right. Malloy is able to kind of stand on his own. But Malloy heard the taxi coming and shocked the men by nimbly leaping out of the way. <laughs> Doing like a backflip. They were just like, ah, ah. <laughs> So, Tough Tony, yeah. he's raggedly breathing at this point. None of the, these guys are all in really terrible shape, just by the way. Like, you're, they're not, like, athletic young men. Yeah. They're young men who have just been really beaten down by the Great Depression. So, yeah. they're not in great shape. So, he, he, and Tough Tony's, like, you know, 43 or something. So, he runs over to the car. He's, root, like, raggedly breathing. Yeah. He's looking Hershey Green in the face. And he's just like, we have to come up with a different plan. I got an idea. Add more honking. <laughs> So they came up with this system that was like a series of honks, which is like, oh, great. Not going to draw any attention. And it would just like alert the men to jump out of the way closer to when the impact was going to happen. Right. So they think maybe they can do a thing. Instead of using the visual cue of when the car is there, now they're (laughs) going to try to add a sound cue. It literally is as dumb as it sounds. Like I read the whole thing and I was like, that's the plan. I mean, I don't want to explain all the, you know, the details of it, but it's just like, that's basically the gist. (sighs) But regardless, this time the plan worked. Tough Tony and Murphy, the bartender, got safely out of the way while Malloy was hit by a taxi cab going 50 miles an hour. Oh, my God. Malloy popped up over the hood and rolled over the top of the car, horrifying everyone inside. A beat and then triumphant screams. Green drove past about three blocks and he turned around to pick up Murphy, the bartender, and Tough Tony and then run over Malloy again for good measure. And as they're pulling up, they see another car had already kind of come through by the street to kind of figure out what's going on. Uh Panicking, the gang piled back into the taxi and just takes off. More shaken and less triumphant than I'm sure they thought they would be. They went to Marino's, peeled themselves off each other's laps to part ways into the snowy night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, you indulge in some theatricality yourself. I do, I do, I do. Hilarious. I, I'm just a, I'm a huge jerk. Okay. <laughs> the next morning at Marino's, things were subdued. Uh-huh. It was oddly quiet without Malloy there. Yeah, now quiet. they don't have anything to do. That's a problem with being a hater. If 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 your enemies actually have their downfall or your perceived enemies, then where does your energy go? Sometimes you say some stuff that's like very like, like what that. wise yeah. yeah hell yeah i can read that on a fortune cookie <laughs> <laughs> tough tony and marino were scouring the papers for a death notice right because uh-huh. they they know they need to collect the insurance but they know that they can't be the ones to find the body mm-hmm. you know so they're kind of right. like okay and they also didn't really check to see where the body landed or what was going on they just took off mm-hmm One headline in the paper read, 
church group rehearses minstrel show. <laughs> Another one read, Mrs. Striver is given party by mitzvah group. Uh, songs and piano selections were offered, and Josephine Haight gave an impersonation of Gracie Allen. Refreshments were served. <laughs> All right. No death notice. <laughs> Did you just find those randomly? <laughs> they were, uh, I found them in the book. When oh, I was the, just like, they're the, just, that was too funny. They were like, where's the death notice? And that's like the headlines <laughs> in the paper. <laughs> like, which church is doing the minstrel show? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't even know St. John's did those anymore. A couple of days went by. Nothing. No Malloy, but no obituary either. No notice of any sort of tragic car accident. I hope he didn't die. Is he alive? They even did that excellent thing that criminals who never get caught do. They returned to the scene of the crime (laughs) and then crawled around on their hands and knees to check under the bushes for bodies. But they didn't find anything, right? That must have been another great Santa Claus spotting for someone looking out their apartment window. Well, there's always... We've done several stories about crimes in the Bronx because like people just dump bodies out there. Yeah, right. And there's a lot of stories about people just being like, yeah, I was watching him do this crazy thing, burn this car. You know, it's just like, whoa. So (laughs) Malloy is nowhere to be found. And, uh, you know, they just sat around looking at each other like, how could he finally die after all that? And then just disappear like a drunken mist. They had planted a fake ID on Malloy, the name listed on their insurance policy. So that's Nicholas Mellory. Uh-huh. And they called all the morgues and hospitals searching for poor Nicholas Mellory's body. But they came up with nothing. After all that, they had completely lost the body. But the murder trust, they weren't going to sit around and wallow. They had worked so hard to give up now. In for a penny. Whatever the last part of that saying is. <laughs> so Marino was like, okay, dudes, what if we just find a body? We'll find someone who looks like Malloy, kill him, and use his stupid body to collect on the insurance. So why would that work? That's the same thing. How are they going to get? They can't kill one. Well, how are they going to make that one look not suspicious? They're not going to quit. Why are you? Are you a quitter? They're not going to quit. <laughs> ah, the hate runs strong with these ones. They do. So on February sixth, Hershey Green showed up again in his death taxi and headed to Harlem to find another victim. The guy ended up. I mean, the gang ended up picking up a guy in Harlem. Getting him drunk at Marino's with an unlimited credit and running the same scam. They slipped a fake ID for Nicholas Mellory into the man's wallet and then did the whole throw the drunk guy into the road while Green hit him with a taxi thing. There were several failed attempts and fleeing of scenes before Hershey Green successfully ran the man down and backed over him just to seal the deal. But... Unfortunately, they were interrupted yet again by a passing car and they had to drive off before securing the body or knowing exactly how the whole thing turned out. And even more unfortunate for the murder trust, there was a witness this time. A man saw the entire whacked out scene and wrote down the taxi's license plate number. And wait for it. Their new victim from Harlem actually was alive. He had been rushed to a hospital in critical condition. Police found an ID for Nicholas Mellory in the man's pocket, 
But in a weird twist, he had amnesia. <laughs> so he couldn't actually deny it was Nicholas Mellory. So that kind of oh was God. like a wash for a while. <laughs> <laughs> pretty wild oh man i almost said no harm no foul i mean they it, harmed yeah, him they so harmed bad him super bad and it, it, you know and, and all the chickens come back to roost they come home to roost but at this point uh-huh. it's just this very odd thing where there's no another time when there's no body and nothing's happening but then that guy has amnesia so he's like yeah i guess i'm nicholas mellory and it just kind of stops for a minute it seems like god is not allowing these people to kill anyone and collect life insurance well so far something's happening so this is where the gang stood Uh uh-huh they were still paying like premiums on three very expensive insurance policies as they had been for like two months or longer they were getting wiped out by giving people open tabs they had hit two guys with the taxi and lost both bodies and the fake IDs needed to claim the bodies as Nicholas Mellory. And now a detective had their license plate in connection to a hit and run. Mm-hmm. All right. So this whole thing is falling apart. With their second victim alive with amnesia now thinking he's Thomas Mellory, the only thing the boys could do at this point was refocus on trying to find Malloy's missing body. So they're like, okay, we'll go back to plan. Right. Except for now, they're going to find him and they'll whatever. And then it'll be like Nicholas Mallory or Thomas Mallory, whatever his name is. And then the detectives like that name is now in the system. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot. of. I mean, you can start to see the edges fraying. Right. Right. Pasqua, who is probably the smartest of the bunch, (laughs) was looking at the shit show thinking like, how did we get here? What he was realizing was most of what they did was in the name of trying to make the death look accidental so they could collect the double indemnity money. Mm-hmm. That was the reason in his mind where this whole thing is spiraled out of control. They just made it way too complicated, too many cooks in the kitchen, too greedy, and now they're like feeling like they have to do that, right? Right. They're trying to be too tricky. Right. So Pasqua decides to go rogue. He calls a shady physician friend, a doctor, and he says, listen, dude. I did this thing. It's a garbage fire. Uh, we were go- we're gonna stop trying for the double indemnity thing. No more fake accidental deaths. We're gonna kill one more guy. <laughs> However, we do it, yeah. we'll pay you one hundred and fifty dollars to write out a death certificate that he died of natural causes, and his damn name was Nicholas Mallory. Okay, so he's like, yeah. just do this for me, and his doctor says, sure, no problem. You got it. So with everything in place, Pasqua pitched this idea to the group. Marino would rent a random furnished apartment with a gas jet installed in the wall. Because back in the day, there were these lamps in some apartments that held a flame that was fueled by gas. Mm -hmm. So that was just like what their lighting was. And you could disconnect it from the lamp. So more money that Marino needs to invest in this thing. Shell out, right? And you know Marino's just sitting there grinding his teeth. So they would lure a guy to the room, hook a rubber tube to the gas jet outlet, stick it in the guy's mouth, and gas him to death. Damn. Bada bing, bada boom, no escape, no missing body, easy peasy, right? No room for mistakes. This is like very easy. (sighs) Now it all came down to finding a third victim. Someone who looked exactly like Iron Mike Malloy. And they didn't have to look far. 
because five days after he had been hit by Green's taxi, none other than Michael Malloy himself dragged himself back into the speakeasy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he's totally alive. Wait, hold on, I have a question also. What? Is his real nickname Iron Mike when you were like those that big, long, funny list of nicknames that you did in the intro? Well, after he, it wasn't his nickname, but that's what they called him after he died. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. like a big, all the different things he was called in the papers. Okay, I got you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the gun, the gang is stunned. Right, but they're trying to play it cool, so they're like, "Hey, buddy, <laughs> where have you been, man? We have an apartment for you to live in now, actually." <laughs> and Malloy told the lads he had woken up bloody in a ditch. He didn't know how he got there, screamed for help, and he was whisked away to the hospital by a local cop. No idea how he got there or what happened at the hospital. Malloy was diagnosed with a fractured skull, fractured shoulder, a concussion, and of course alcoholism Mm. he was conscious when he arrived at the hospital so he had checked in under his own name nobody checked his id right so that's why the gang hadn't found him in any hospital they were looking for nicholas mallory and hadn't even thought to check if malloy was somewhere (laughs) under his real name (laughs) so the gang huddled back around one of the grimy speakeasy tables to plan their next move Meanwhile, Murphy went back to pouring Malloy shots of wood alcohol at the bar. But according to Murphy... They're all just getting high and slowly rotting their brains from the fumes. They really are. That smells like terrible. It's like a very stinky thing. But according to bartender Murphy, he had this moment where he couldn't stand it anymore. And he decided he wanted to tell Malloy what was up. You know, Murphy said he told him, hey, man... You got to get out of this bar. Uh-huh. These guys are going to kill you. And he's thinking about the gas jet thing. And he's like, that's probably going to work. Like, yeah. get out of here while you can. Yeah. And Malloy, he said he, Malloy listened, was quiet for a second, and then just answered back, if they do anything to me, they will suffer for it themselves. Oh, he is a saint. And they sure did. <laughs> oh, my God. This guy really is a mystic or something. Yeah. I mean, he's just, you know, he's telling the truth. Also, just as a little side note, uh-huh. <laughs> nosy as tough Tony watched that whole exchange. <laughs> he like saw he saw like Murphy bend down and start talking to Malloy. The guy was like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> I don't think I feel like tough Tony is not no, no nosy. I think. He just listens. He's probably a little less drunk than everyone else. Yeah. And they're all just in this little room talking to each yeah, other. Yeah, he's like, you better not be saying everything. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, it was Murphy, our bartender Murphy, and our old friend, Daniel Kreisberg, who did the final deed. They got Malloy plastered, walked him back to the rented room with a bottle of whiskey, Malloy passed out and they ran a rubber tube from the gas nozzle to Malloy's mouth and held it in place with a towel. Michael Malloy finally died. Oh, R.I.P. And Pasqua's crooked physician listed Malloy's name as Thomas Mallory and his cause of death as pneumonia. R.I.P., man. The boys quickly buried Malloy two days after his death on February 22nd. And on February 25th, they went to collect the insurance with Murphy pretending to be Nicholas Mallory's grieving brother and Pasqua acting as the empathetic undertaker. 
I have a quite another question. Hit me. You've been switching back and forth between Thomas Mallory and Nicholas Mallory on the fake names. Oh fuck. That's okay. Wait, I mean, it's, we've done it. No, I can't. We can't cut it out now, girl. You've done it too many times. I think it's Nicholas Mallory, okay. and then. Uh, uh, Thomas is the brother's name? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I thought I caught all those. No, I think you went back and forth several times. It's Why okay. Why did you say anything? Well, because I, I thought it was just once, and I was like, I think you've done it several times. I don't know. We're getting... We're How part of the murder trust you? now. We are the murder trust. See, that's the thing. This... You know, it's like one of those inspirational stories where you think you're the hero, you think you're Iron Mike, but really, we've been the murder trust the whole time. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Great. Oh, I'm so mad at myself. <laughs> no, you're good. Okay, fine. In March, the boys got their $800 payout from Metropolitan Life Insurance. Mm -hmm. Marino divvied out the cash. Pasqua, who had done, you know, a lot of the work, got $400. Plus, he had fronted for the the funeral. Okay. Marino, who had fronted most of the money, took the other half. And then they both kind of slipped people money. So they slipped Murphy 65 bucks, which he was super pumped about. (laughs) And they all went out and bought some suits and some fancy dinners. They gave Tough Tony 65 bucks, Kreisberg 50, and gave Hershey Green, Joe Magnoloni, and the Dirty Doctor kind of a token payment with uh-huh. the promise of more when they cashed in their prudential policies. Because okay. there's a lot more money supposedly coming through. This mm-hmm. was just a taste. Right. Okay. But at prudential... They ran into the snag that undid the entire operation. Prudential wouldn't pay out without seeing the body. Mm. The body that was already buried in the ground. Barring that, they would have to open an investigation. You know, I could be wrong and I just don't remember. In the Eva Koo episode, she also had all these different life insurance policies out on Harry's life with big companies that are still around. And I think it might've been Prudential that was like, uh, we're not giving you this money. We have to do an investigation. They were the sticklers. That's funny. So they open this investigation and they start seeing a lot of fishy stuff come up. Right. Uh If you remember from the first episode, they had created this whole alternative, uh, identity for Nicholas Mellory. Oh, right. Like his backstory. Right. So he was supposed to like live at this address Uh and then, you know, was renting this room and there was a landlady and there was, you know, he was a flower arranger, a florist. It was this whole thing. (laughs) Let's just go to the florist, see what they say about his death. And the investigator goes and it's just like a huge mess. Nobody knows who this guy is. And then the only people who kind of act like they do are clearly lying. Nothing matches up. They call in Pasqua and Murphy, the bartender to like have an, an interview. And they just like, Biff it. They uh-huh. biff it super hard. They're not prepared to be grilled, you know? Yeah. And they're not prepared, like, they realize during the line of questioning what the insurance company actually thinks happened, and they realize how bad this is, right? Okay. So they kind of were just like, oh, they're going to deny the policy. But then it starts being like, yeah, you know, like the implication is. Oh, that right. It's think- not just like a clean no. It's like, actually, it seems like you guys really broke the law and maybe murdered him. Right. And they're right. hearing this stuff, like yeah. forging of signatures. And Pasqua had done a lot of stuff uh-huh. to try to like 
buffer his involvement. So like he wasn't in the car when they did the stupid taxi capades, right? Yeah, uh-huh. He stayed home with his wife and family. Yeah. And he did a few other things. So he thought he was really covered. But they start <laughs> catching stuff like Pasqua forged a signature uh-huh. and like did all this kind of stuff. And he starts putting it together, realizing they think he's like the mastermind. Oh, no. I mean, good. I'm glad he gets caught, but could you just imagine the <laughs> sinking suspicion of that? He just really, it was just like, oh no. <sighs> so in the end, the money for the smaller policy, the Metropolitan one, quickly disappeared. They sure. didn't have anything to show for it. $800 split between countless jerks spent <laughs> on suits and like beef steaks. <laughs> Plus... They are also the center of both an insurance investigation and a hit-and-run investigation. Mm -hmm. Then, on March 19th, the gang became the center of a completely separate murder investigation. (laughs) You mean not even from the other guy they hit? Just a totally different... This is a new thing. Okay, all right. Completely new thing. Okay. March 19th, 1933... Joe Maglioni shot his best friend forever, Tough Tony, <gasps> to death outside Marino's speakeasy. God damn. The two were arguing about who deserved the biggest cut from this uncollected prudential payout. It <laughs> like was like imaginary, hypothetical. hypothetical. <laughs> and Maglioni just snapped. Yeah. Uh, he went to the bathroom, flushed the toilet, just like Godfather, came out blasting, shot him twice. Damn. Tough Tony managed to get up. Right, Joe Magnoloni came over and kind of disarmed him, but then Taptoni popped up and ran out into the street. So they're out in front of the speakeasy. Yeah. And Magnoloni shoots him two more times right in front of a cop, and uh, <laughs> Magnoloni was arrested and Tony died. Oh. So this left Murphy, the drunken bartender, alone to answer the questions of an illegal speakeasy completely full of detectives. (laughs) Now, Murphy, the bartender, was the key material witness in the murder of tough Tony Bestum. Jesus. So that's like pretty stupid. Yeah, it's like if Barney from The Simpsons is (laughs) like the, the key witness. He's like, he's, I mean, they don't know what he's going to do. Right. So the next morning, Pasco and Marino open the speakeasy and it's eerily quiet. And oddly, Murphy, the bartender, wasn't asleep in his usual spot on the oily couch in the corner. Mm-hmm. They don't really know what's going on. And Marino opens a newspaper to find the headline, Two Gun Gangster is Murdered for Insult in Speakeasy Dispute. <laughs> So that's how he finds out that Tough Tony's dead, Maglioni's in jail, and also Murphy is being held as a material witness. <laughs> <laughs> that was when the newspapers really did give you the news. Really just nailed it, given the business. <laughs> so now, good news. Tough Tony's crazy ass was dead. Bad news. Murphy was now in police custody. No one knew what he was going to do. And also now Marino's speakeasy was the center of a brand new murder investigation. (laughs) And the curse of Iron Mike Malloy continued with a string of seemingly random bad luck. Mm -hmm. Next thing that happens, the cabbie, Hershey Green, is just randomly arrested. He was carrying a concealed weapon. So he was arrested not on the hit and run charge, but just a different charge. Sure. Uh, Then Daniel Kreisberg 
was finally arrested for his involvement with the Pants Bandit. Came back to bite him. <laughs> he was look out for the Pants Bandit. I remember. She right. got caught. He got caught. Police exhumed Malloy's body on May 11th. And during the autopsy, so really, first off, yeah. they exhume his body. And he's remarkably well-preserved. Like, they're uh-huh. kind of freaked out by how well-preserved he is, considering they took all this money for this extravagant funeral, but they buried him in this crushed pine box. Yeah. But he was fine. So they take him out. Well, he's pickled. Yeah. They take him out, and his skin, uh, the inside of his body, yeah. like underneath when they cut him open for the autopsy, yeah. is cherry red. It's oh. bright pink. And that's because... It's a hallmark of carbon monoxide poisoning. So as soon as they open him mm. up, like... It's super obvious. It's super obvious that he died yeah. of carbon monoxide poisoning. And the dumb thing is, he could have just signed the death warrant saying he died of carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> That's going to be true in a house where like, oops, I accidentally disconnected the stupid hose yeah, on this right. thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's no reason why he needed to say pneumonia. Like in the beginning, do you remember? Yeah. Marino used to threaten to do the exact same thing to his family. He was like, I'm going to unplug the lamp. Oh, yeah. And you're gas right. is all in our apartment. Like, that's not something that wasn't happening. Oh. So it's just like, all right, great job, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Pasqua's like, anything you do, write something different than what we did, <laughs> even though we actually, actually might have created the perfect crime. Mess it up on the death certificate, idiot. <sighs> So, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, Prudential did not pay out the policies. And after that, the murder trust basically imploded. Everyone snitched on each other sure. with John McNally, uh-huh. tough Tony's old adversary that he wanted to shoot right away. He led the pack. He was in trouble for something else. Oh, he was a lead rat. He was the lead rat. He identified Malloy as, you know, they were like, we have this body. Yeah. What's the connection? We don't understand. And he's like, that's Malloy. That's Iron Mike Malloy. He put the whole, he, he pointed the finger at everybody. Yeah. Ultimately, five men were charged in the insurance murder scheme. Tony Marino, Murphy the bartender, Frank Pasqua, and Daniel Kreisberg, and Hershey Green. McNally was one of the star witnesses for the prosecution. Maglioni and Hershey Green turned state witnesses before the trial, so they also testified against these guys. Uh And in the end, Marino, Pasqua, Kreisberg, and Murphy were all found guilty and died in the electric chair at Sing Sing in the summer of 1934. Oh, my God. Well, then they were... Also electrocuted to death by Robert G. Elliott. Yeah. I was gonna from the Eva Koo episode. Yeah. Wow. They were really, really electrocuting people. Yeah. I mean, those guys are obviously guilty of this horrible crime. Like but to give all of them the electric chair for like weird plots and schemes and Well, I mean you know, Kreisberg and Murphy actually did the gassing right, and yeah, then Marino yeah. paid for everything and yeah. like set the entire thing up and was yeah. there for all of these different attempts. And then right. Pasqua did all of the insurance policies. They And yeah. I'm not going to get super into it because it was, well, I don't know. Um, Marino, Pasqua and Kreisberg all had these big, you know, they had families. And yeah. so they all came to, it was this really sad situation all these people there and kids and they're saying goodbye and all this kind of stuff 
And it was actually interesting because those guys had family, but Murphy, the bartender, he had nobody. You know, he was the kid who had grown up in the foster mm-hmm. system and yeah. had been institutionalized for like 10 years. Right. And right before they were supposed to be executed, he got a stay of reprieve because the doctor that had diagnosed him with the mentality of a nine-year-old yeah. back way back in the day when he was like a teenager, he had called the governor to say, hey, I know this kid. Wow. You know, you should look into his mentality. So they took him off death row. Yeah. And then the three guys saw that happening and ca- thought maybe it was going to work for them. And yeah. it totally didn't. And Pasqua, the undertaker, just snapped. He was just like wild. And the way that they um, organized executions or the way they used to when they just did these mass executions yeah. was that they, they, they take the person who's losing it the most and that's the first person to be electrocuted. Wow. So they take Murphy away yeah. and then they did Pasqua, uh, Marino, and Kreisberg in order. And then, unfortunately, or I don't know, whatever this, I don't even know what the lesson is of this thing. Yeah. Murphy only had a reprieve for a month. Yeah. So it didn't stop him from being electrocuted. So he was electrocuted a month later. I feel like what an intense um, companion piece to the Ivaku episode. Yeah. Whoa. So... What was the emotional button that got pushed that made you cry at the end of this book? <laughs> Honestly, I don't I don't really know. I think that I don't know. It's a great book. It's really interesting. I think it's just that people I could follow the internal logic of where they were coming from, you know, and kind of what situation you're in. It's a really tragic situation and none of them grew up in great homes or anything yeah. like that. And, yeah. and they live in this really depraved kind of situation. And it's very stark. It's bleak yeah. for people and during the Great Depression right. in this area at this time. And I think that the justification for what they were thinking was like, it was very gentle at first. It was like, hey, he wants to drink. Yeah. We want this insurance policy. Let's just open the tab and he'll do himself in. Yeah. You know, and it snowballed in this super epic way that just kind of was too many cooks in the kitchen, too many people, good money after bad, you know, mob mentality. And I think when it got to the fever pitch of what it was, I doubt from just reading this book, I doubt that a lot of these guys would have been like, oh, I want to do that. Yeah. You know, like I think, I don't think that they would have, especially like people like Daniel Kreisberg and even, I mean, all of them. I think that if you had pointed to what it would become. Right. At the end of like the whole thing, I think that they would have been like, that's a really bad idea. We definitely shouldn't do that. Yeah, like it was that guy who's nodding along with the dude speaking Italian and the drunk bartender who is equally as sick as Malloy was, who are the ones that held him down and put the hose down his throat. Right, but he was already, you know, and and I think like it's a weird thing, you know, because they think, okay, well, but he's already passed out and he doesn't have much longer to live. I mean, I think that there's ways to justify it. Actually, we're going to do this episode um, for our Patreon uh-huh. in a little bit uh, that I did a, this really interesting documentary that I watched. Yeah. And one of the concepts that this uh, psychologist talks about is the idea that human brains 
are more rationalizing than rational. So mm-hmm. we think we have like we're good people and we can kind of be make rational decisions. Yeah. But actually, often our brain is just really good at fitting the circumstances to what we want that want it to be. Totally. And it's an expression yeah. of human creativity that we're like uh-huh. that good at rationalizing. And there's yeah. something about this story to me that feels like that. You know that everyone had a reason oh. for why they didn't. Why it wasn't bad. I know. It's just like a bunch of broken people like breaking each other and themselves down further yeah. like, to the to the bitter end. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Wild story. Man, I wish I could say something. One of those fortune cookie things right now. <laughs> Wrap this thing in a pretty bow. But I'm also going to just going to start crying. I don't have any wood alcohol, but I'm definitely going to drink the closest thing to that in modern day which is a white claw i'm gonna drink a white claw <laughs> while i edit this thing and pour, right. pour one out for malloy r.i.p and oh, oh man <laughs> the many the many drunken saints of of the bronx damn okay muriel you want to give the references one more time right this one was basically the whole episode is from the book Um, was based from information from the book On the House Mm -hmm. by Simon Reed. It's a great book. I would super recommend it. He's a really funny writer, and I took some quotes that I think were really funny from him, but he's a really thorough researcher, and he's gone through and like created this whole timeline and did a really beautiful piece on this story uh, that I thought was very funny and very interesting. I'd definitely recommend it. It made you cry. Yeah, it kind of hits you in the feels at the end. I mean, it's weird because you're crying at like, you're, it's the ex- it's like murderers. You know what I yeah. mean? It's just a whole thing, guys. A whole thing. <laughs> All right, we're done now. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording editing and post-production this podcast was recorded in our living room hey you guys to support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes the one i'm working on right now is gonna be really fun yeah uh you can sign up for our patreon at www.com damn it www.patreon.com slash muriel's murders and also you can rate and review muriel's murders on apple podcasts uh, dave did it yeah hell Yeah. yeah be like dave be like dave baby if you like it uh, it does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can read us there. Yep. You can send us all kinds of stuff like emails, voicemails, whatever. We love to hear from you. We love getting suggestions. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. You know, Hit us up. find us on social media at Muriel's murders. We put out, um, you know what I think to be absolutely hilarious animations and dumb videos and silly things. And you know, it's just a way to connect with you guys there. We try to follow everyone back and our DMS are open. So find us on social media. If that's something that you're able to fit into your life and have it not uh, make you feel bad, which happens for a lot of people. And I respect the choice to, uh, you know, avoid social media in its entirety, but we try to keep it fun and like a community building thing. So at Muriel's murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. And our music is by Mario Casolini. Find him on Instagram at Casolini beats. Goodbye podcast. Here comes the editing and white claw. Muriel, thank you so much. Nick, thank you so much. I will see you in a little while. (laughs) Right now. Okay. Bye everyone. (laughs) Bye.